through this book and uh, plowing quite literally. We have like five chapters to get through today. <clears throat> but you'll be really pleased to know that um, we moved away last week from Goma and Hosea as a metaphor for God and his people. And we moved into this sort of courtroom scene at chapter 4 where God charges the people and he says, this is the problem with you, Israel. And that runs right the way through. And so even though we cut it off last week, because there is a sort of distinction between the two, actually we could have run right the way through. Uh, I don't know how you would feel about like eight chapters of Old Testament, like hard uh, teaching on, look, you're just a sinful people, okay? Because <laughs> that's essentially the message. Um, but we looked at the faithfulness of God in the in the in the face of the unfaithfulness, the depths of the unfaithfulness of the people. And that what happens when we reject the wisdom of God, the knowledge of God, when we exchange a right worship of God for a worship of idols, which we don't, you might not have a golden calf, but believe me, we can be guilty of. But in the face of that unfaithfulness, God says, by the way, I'm faithful. I was faithful to my eternal plan of salvation. I am faithful in creation, in showing you every time the sun rises reminding you of my eternal plan and I'm coming again and and so because some of the themes from last week are continued this week we're going to we're going to move quite quickly over the first four to four chapters and hopefully dwell a little bit in God's great father heart and plan of salvation at the end so uh if you uh, have your bibles grab them and we're going to uh, chapter 6 of Hosea. Now, last week, um, I talked to you about um, the start of this chapter. Come, let us return to the Lord. He has torn us to pieces, but he will heal us. And I suggested that this was Hosea talking to his own people, the northern kingdom, and saying, people, friends, come, let us return to the Lord. Now, not all people agree with that position. And uh, Josh and I have had a little discussion, and uh, we decided I was right. Uh, no. We didn't. Uh, he, basically, Josh take, would take this from the point of view, and there are like Tyndale, for example, in his commentaries. He would take Josh's position, um, which is which is quite an accolade, Josh. And uh, basically saying that this isn't Hosea appealing to the people. This is him communicating the heart of the people and saying, "Come, let us return to the Lord. He has torn us to pieces, but he'll heal us." Like a complacent sort of sham repentance. Yeah, God has always been there. I can turn back whenever I like. I can do what I like and God will always be there because he's this faithful God. He's always been there. He always will be. It doesn't matter what I do. Whereas I was saying, come, let us return to the Lord. That this is an appeal. Saying, as Hosea lays out the plan of salvation. Anyway, whether you take my position or you take Joshua's position, I'm not going to ask you to sort of divide now. I'm not going to do that. Um, but with that in mind, whatever happens, you come to this place. Whether you take either view, you come to this place because Israel didn't repent. Whether it was a sham repentance or whether it was an appeal to the people to repent, both ways end up the same way. They didn't. And this is where we come at verse 4. What can I do with you, Ephraim? What can I do with you, Judah? Your love is like the morning mist, like the early dew that disappears. Therefore, I cut you to pieces with my prophets, as in the words of God, cut them to pieces. I killed you with the word of my mouth. My judgments flash like lightning upon you, for I desire mercy, not sacrifice, an acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. 
You see, they were saying that whichever way you take, your love is like the morning mist. You might go through some random acts of devotion. You might do the right things at times. You might, you might present a right sacrifice at some point, but your love, your devotion to me is just in a, in a glimpse and gone like the mist that comes on the bay just up the road. And as soon as the sun comes out, it burns away and it's just gone. It just evaporates. That's the picture of Israel's love. Yeah, you come to me sometimes. But I desire a relationship. I mean, what would it be like if, if I just said to Jenny, oh, yeah, I love you. Some sort of just passing token. And then the rest of my life lived like we were just good friends living together. Like just some random thing. That wouldn't be a relationship. We wouldn't regard that as a marriage. We wouldn't be getting to know each other and loving each other. And it's like that with the people. They were just random things from time to time. And this is what we get at verse 6. It says, For I desire mercy, not sacrifice, an acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. Yes, the law required the sacrifices and the offerings to be made, but only out of a heart of worship, out of a heart of relationship, the sacrifices were meant to be an expression of what was going on in the heart. And instead they were just giving these tokens and at the same time running away. And you know, we can look at this and say, oh, you know, yeah, yeah, I don't have to bring a sacrifice. But, you know, God's after a relationship with us. He's after knowing us and us knowing him. A daily discovery of the character of God. I hope you're seeing this in Hosea. That every time we look into the depths of the human character and all of our flaws, it should lead us more and more in awe of the amazing character of God. And how other he is, it should lead us to worship. And God desires relationship with us, a daily discovery of who he is and worship with him. Now, as I said, we're going to gloss over some of these things, but I do want to just stop here in chapter 7. It says, when, when it's got this sort of complicated thing, uh, complicated sort of imagery, and I just want to look at it quickly. It says at verse 3 of chapter 7, They delight the king with their wickedness, the princes with their lies. They are all adulterers, burning like an oven, whose fire the baker need not stir, from the kneading of the dough till it rises. Now, here what we're talking about is, we, it's thought that what he's talking about here is that the baker is like the king. okay, And he's trying to bake his bread. He's trying to do his job. And he should be supported by the fire. And the fire represents the advisors and, and the princes around him, the sort of royal court, so to speak. And it says, and then it moves out of this imagery and into sort of an, an actual account. It says, on the day of the festival of our king, the princes become inflamed with wine and he joins with hands with the mockers. Their hearts are like an oven. They approach him with intrigue. Their passion smoulders all night. In the morning, it blazes like a flaming fire. All of them are hot as an oven. They devour their rulers. All their kings fall and none of them calls on me. I mean, this is imagery that like doesn't seem to make sense and it's sort of worthy of Shakespeare, and I don't understand Shakespeare either. But what I think he's talking about here is that the princes who were supposed to be supporting the work of the king devoured him. And and so what, it ha- what you have is um, a, a sort of picture of conspiracy and intrigue, rather like England in the Middle Ages with all the kings and all the, and all the sort of royal court in a conspiracy. But the point, the main point here is the fact that all the kings fall at verse 7 and none of them calls on me. 
And then rather more damning, further down at verse 9, it says, Foreigners sap his strength and he does not realise it. His hair is sprinkled with grey and he does not notice. Now, I don't know, some of you guys have reached a point in life where your hair is beginning to go grey. Okay, And I'm willing to bet, if you're like me, that it wasn't you that noticed it first. It was your wife who said, are you going grey? And she goes, no, no, wait, wait, hang on, just come here. I want to pluck this. Why is it wise for the need to do that? You're like, you know it hurts, okay? But the, the point is that the, the imagery that is used here is that you weren't the first to spot that you were going grey, probably. There were a couple of things. Your wife was probably the first to notice it. It was obvious to her. It's obvious to everyone else, but maybe not initially to you. And this is the picture of Israel's plight. What they're doing, their false sacrifices, their idolatry, their exchange of knowledge and wisdom is leading them down a path to destruction. And they haven't realised it. To us, when we look at the, when we look at that passage about the baker and the fire, and when we consider the turnover of kings that happened in that time, four kings assassinating, assassinated by their successor. This was not a time to be of glory in Israel and the monarchy. And it should be obvious to us looking back that this was, this was a bad thing, but to them at the time, it, they just, they didn't. They didn't acknowledge God. They didn't acknowledge that there was anything wrong. And so, when we get to verse 14, we see this. They do not cry out to me from their hearts, but wail upon their beds. They just, they've got these public things of, I'm wailing before God. And yet it says, they do not cry out to me from their hearts. They gather together for grain and new wine, for the festivals, but they turn away from me. God is after our hearts. Our hearts cry, not an act that we think other people expect of us. We can come to church just because it's the done thing. I grew up coming to church by an obligation just because I thought, what else do I do on a Sunday morning? It's what I've always done. And I felt wrong if I didn't come to church on a Sunday morning. It was really strange. And yet God was after my heart. God was after me, whether I came to church or not, a relationship with me daily. You know, we can go through the motions. You can say, I, I went to my service today. I, I, do you know what? I even joined a life group last week. I went to an elective. I went to Genesis to Revelation. I know all about the Bible. Okay, we can do these acts. But unless they come out of a heart and a desire to discover God and know Him and worship Him, that our lives would glorify Him, then they can just be random acts that we do because other people expect them of us. My parents expected me to go to church. But God was after something more. He wanted to know me and for me to know Him. He wanted a daily relationship. I want to... I want to encourage you today. I want you just to posture yourselves this morning with Psalm 139. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Do that little test before God as we finish in worship this morning. Not quite yet, but <laughs> Josh was like, oh, I'm good. <laughs> That's a quick one. But actually to... To, to engage with God and just say, God, is the, are there any grey hairs that I haven't noticed yet? Uh, is there anything that I'm doing that is leading me in the wrong way? Is there anything I'm doing just because people expect it of me? Because I want to put on a show that, that, that I'm for you and yet actually my heart is far from you. Is there anything you want to challenge me on this morning? 
And allow God to do that. Let us be soft-hearted. These were people who were going the wrong way. And they didn't know it. Their hearts were far from him. They do not turn to the Most High, it says. Chapter 8 is really just a summary of what we looked at last week. But what I want you to see is that it is a people, not, not now that... Get my words right. <laughs> We've looked at a people who didn't know they were in the wrong. And so they didn't know they needed to change. And now in this chapter we see emerging that they are a people that God is appealing to time and time again. And they just won't change. And this is really a summary of the points I made last week. We talk about verse 1 of chapter 8. Because the people have broken my covenant and rebelled against my law. People who reject the law of God as a, as a sort of moral code for their lives. When we get down to verse 3. Um, no, verse 4, they set up kings without my consent and choose princes without my approval. These are people who make big decisions about guidance and leadership and they're not consulting God. They're just coming up with their, with their own ideas. At verse, uh, 6, we talk, at verse 4 and 5, we talk about, um, with their silver and gold, they make idols for themselves. The exchange of a right worship for worship of idols. And it says, they sow the wind and they reap the whirlwind. We're supposed to be a planting of the Lord for a display of his splendor. And yet these were people who were like sowing seeds into the air. Just here one minute and they're gone the next. And what happens? You will reap the whirlwinds. You will reap something more destructive. You, you, let me tell you how dangerous it is what you're doing. And so verse 8 to 10, we talk. it talks about what we talked about last week. For they have gone up to Assyria like a wild donkey wandering alone. Ephraim has sold herself to her lovers. That in, When they knew there was something wrong, you don't go to Assyria unless there's something wrong. If, you, if this is a really fruitful time in the country, you don't then go to another nation and ask for help. They were aware something was wrong and they went to Assyria. They didn't turn to God. These are a people, can you see, who won't change. Their hearts are getting harder and harder. When we get to verse 11, it says, Through Ephraim, Though Ephraim built many altars for sin offerings, these have become altars for sinning. When we talk about altars, we're talking about sacrifice. And they, had, they were sacrificing to all and sundry because they thought, well, you know, if I sacrifice to this and I sacrifice to that, I've sort of covered my basis. And it's like that with us. You know, the world will tell you there are many ways to salvation. There are many ways to heaven. And God, the Bible says there is only one. His name is Jesus, our Savior. Don't construct for yourself another altar. Don't try and construct good works. We are all sinners in need of God's grace. And if you've known Jesus for 20, 30, 100 years, we're still sinners saved by grace and in need of his grace to live this out. The result of this, when we get to chapter, chapter 9, it says, The prophet is considered a fool, the inspired man a maniac. They have got to the point where they have so downtrodden the word of God and refused to listen. They have said the word of God is foolish. It's foolish. They couldn't see the error of their ways. These are a people who will not change. And if God is after you today, if God is stirring something in you, the Bible says don't, don't be like them who harden their hearts. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Let us not be a people who won't change. As the Holy Spirit stirs something in you to say, can I get to this issue in you today? Would you just yield? May I be a person that yields when God prompts me. 
let us not be hard-hearted because the problem that when we continually suppress the Holy Spirit and, and when God is prompting us, if we continually do that, if we continually are a people who won't change, we very quickly become a people who just can't change. And this is the picture we get in um, chapter 10, verse 12. Sow for yourselves righteousness. Reap the fruit of unfailing love. Hosea is saying, if only you would take on board the things God is saying, it would be fruitful for you. You're not a, you won't be a sowing to the wind that reaps the whirlwind. You'll sow righteousness. <laughs> and yet it says, and break up your unplowed ground for it is time to seek the Lord until he comes and showers righteousness upon you. Break up your unplowed ground. You see, the problem is if you continually suppress the Holy Spirit, eventually it will come like concrete. And when God's word comes and he challenges you, it will just bounce off and won't go anywhere. You see, very quickly you become a people who can't change. And this is where Israel got to. It says at verse 15, Thus will it happen to you, O Bethel, because your wickedness is great. When the day dawns, the king of Israel will be completely destroyed. God's saying, you're not going to listen to discipline. I'm going to destroy you. Your place, your what you deserve, Israel, is judgment, is destruction. You deserve for your name to be wiped out. From the face of the earth. Such is your unfaithfulness. Such is the fact that you will not change. You will not yield. And God's righteousness. His justice. Demands that this sin be paid for. And he's saying at the moment. This is what would happen if I allowed it. You will be destroyed. And when we get to chapter 11. We just breathe a sigh of relief. As we see against that point of you deserve this, we get the Father heart of God laid out for us in all its glory. Oh, praise God. When Israel was a child, chapter 11, if you're not there, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I call my son. You see, do you see the language changing? God saying, you're my son. You're my son. I love you. And then it goes on. But the more I called Israel, the further they went from me. They sacrificed to the Baals and they burned incense to images. It was I who taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by the arms. Do you see the father heart? I taught you everything you know. But they did not realize. It was I who healed him. I led him with cords of human kindness, with ties of love. I lifted the yoke from their neck and bent down to feed them. Will they not return to Egypt? Will they, will Assyria not rule over him? You see, here what it's talking about is discipline. Yes, Assyria is going to take you into captivity because you need to learn a lesson. I talked last week about the naughty step in our house that the girls need to learn the error of their ways sometimes. Izzy had her first experience there yesterday. How cool is that? Little chubby cheeks. Just won't leave the stereo alone. Suddenly it sounds like there's an earthquake. Okay? This is... And God... The Bible says a father... Or God disciplines those he loves. His discipline, even his discipline, is to lead them in the right way. Is to allow them to seek repentance. It's to lead them in the right way. Even that is a demonstration. You're my son. You're my child. I want nothing but the best for you. And I also want you to see in this part, it says, and out of Egypt I called my son. Okay, that verse is directly uh, um, given in the New Testament. 
That's what Jesus did. He was called out of Egypt. He had to go to Egypt while Herod and the people around him wanted to kill all the firstborn, wanted to kill Jesus, wanted to get rid of him. And so Jesus goes, he's taken by Mary and Joseph to, to Egypt. And when the right time came, when Herod had gone and the people wanting to kill him had gone, out of Egypt I called my son. Even here it is talking about not only are you my son, not only do, you, do I love you, but I'm also hinting here at my great plan of salvation. In verse 4 it says, I led him with cords of human kindness, with ties of love. I lifted the yoke from their neck. Jesus lifted the, the, the yoke of the law, didn't he, from us. And he says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And bent down to feed them. Jesus, the bread of life, stooped down from heaven and came to live among us to feed us, to sustain us. The word of God. Can you see in this passage how it's hinting all the time? Jesus, God is hinting, I've got a plan for you. I love you. You're my son. But we get this great impasse. It says at at verse 7, My people are determined to turn from me. Even if they call to the Most High, He will by no means exalt them. The people still refused to change. And the problem with the standoff is, one person has to yield at some point. Otherwise, you just continually stand there. Somebody has to give in. And the people are so hard-hearted, they either won't change by this stage, or they just can't change. The point of... um, the can't change is, uh, if you look at Ephesians 2, it talks about our position in sin as a people who can't change. It says, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live. When you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us, all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. Okay, have you ever seen a dead person feed themselves, clothe themselves, wash themselves? They can do nothing for themselves. That is our picture in sin. But it's at that moment that God steps across the divide. If if you read on in Ephesians, it talks about, no, we were made it because of his great love for us. Because of his great mercy, we were made alive in Christ. It was God who stepped across the divide. It was God who broke the standoff and came after us and lavished us with his grace and mercy and made us alive in Christ. It was he who did it. And so this is what we see in verse 8. How can I give you up Ephraim? How can I hand you over Israel? How can I treat you like Admar? How can I make you like Zeboam? Admar and Zeboam were cities in the plain with Sodom and Gomorrah. Okay, the picture here is one that is really, really offensive to Israel. Sodom and Gomorrah. I mean, it's where the, we get the word sodomy from. Okay, it gives you a picture of what went on in that, in those cities. They were, there was not a single righteous person in there and God judged them. God destroyed those cities. And Admar and Zeboam went with them. God is saying, but you're my son. How can I treat you like that? You're my child. Oh, Ephraim, can I give you up? Can I hand you over? You know, execution. If you, if you ever watch a film with execution, you see the fear in the person's eyes as it's about to happen. And you suddenly think, no matter what they've done, 
this is a horrible consequence. And I sort of get the picture with God as he begins to consider. Now, bear in mind, he is eternal. He has an eternal plan of salvation. But obviously, he reveals it to us in moments of time. And so we have to sort of look at it from our point of view. And you can sort of imagine him looking over Israel and saying, you deserve judgment. You deserve this. And then looking into their eyes and thinking, but you're my son. You're my son. I love you. At the prospect, thinking of the prospect of them being judged and his heart being moved. You know, my mum and dad call me son. My mum calls me Gilly because uh, that's what my friends call me. It was just easier. But my dad often, especially when I'm being disciplined or was, calls me son. And Jenny, who grew up in a house with three girls, doesn't really understand this term. And she says, isn't it a bit strange when your mum and dad call you son? Like, what is that? But I said to her, no, to me, it conveys who I am. Sonship has nothing to do with my behavior. It has, it has to do with who I am. In doing that, they are saying, Simon, you're our son. There is nothing you can do to take you out of that. There is nothing you can do. You can't rebel so far that you will never be our son. It is your status. And we love you in it. You are our son. And we are proud to say it. And they said it even when I ran away. They said it even when I rebelled. Even when what I was doing was horrible to them. I was still son. They looked upon me and said, you are my son. And so this is what we get. The father's heart of God at the back end of verse 8. It says, my heart is changed within me. See, as God... As God contemplates the prospect of judging them. He says, my heart is changed within me. An older version of the Bible says, turned over. There's this sense of great turmoil in God's heart as he thinks about the prospect of judging them. Oh, my heart is turned over. All my compassion is aroused. I'm going to come across the divide. I'm going to sort this out for you. Because I love you. As I said, a... It's here that um, God steps across the divider. A standoff continues, will always continue until somebody gives in. And God, without changing, steps across and deals with the situation. You see, the flaws in our character of the people who are hard-hearted and will not change are matched here against the demonstration of the softness of God's heart and His compassion and His love that pursues you and me and wasn't satisfied with the prospect of eternity without you but stepped across, stepped out of eternity and into time after you and after me in love and compassion so that we could remain His children. You know, my, uh, I talk about Jess a lot and, uh, and she, I have a psalm that I read to her, Psalm 103, and I'm not convinced whether it's for her that I'm reading this or for me because this talks about, um, God being gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. He will not as accuse or normally harbour his anger forever. And as, and as, and as I see her in front of me, like kicking Izzy in the head or something like that, and I think, ah, God is just reminding me as I deal with her, Simon, I just want you to know I am gracious. I am compassionate. I am slow to anger. I am abounding in love. And I'm thinking, oh, I 
just want to, I just want to kick you back. Do you know what I mean? It's like, I just want you to know what it feels like to be on the receiving end of what you're doing. And yet God has said to me, no, I am gracious and compassionate. I'm slow to anger. And you know, sometimes I can say to her, Jess, there is a consequence to what you're going to do. But it just entrenches her position. And one time she was having a tantrum and I said, Jess, if you will not do this, you cannot go to the party this afternoon. And as soon as I had said it, I knew I'm a dad who has to stand by what I say. Otherwise, they won't understand. They have to understand discipline. And yet I knew at that moment there was no way that was going to change her. It was going to entrench her position. And there was this standoff. And God said to me, Simon, you are wrong. Go and tell your three-year-old that you are wrong. And that that isn't the consequence. There will be discipline. But she can go to the party. Don't demonstrate to your children that you are also a person who cannot change. Let me soften your heart and go after her. Step across and allow her to come out of this position. And I had to step across. Now, I can overlook sin, but God cannot. And the thing with Hosea we see... It says this, I will not carry out my fierce anger, nor will I turn and and devastate Ephraim, for I am God and not a man, the Holy One among you. I will not come in wrath. You see, Hosea gets to this position where you're like, I don't understand this. You're not going to carry out your fierce anger on one hand, and yet on the other you're saying you're a holy God. How does this work? Surely if you're a holy God, you've got to judge them. And the great thing I find about theology is the fact that it should never lead us to a point where we think we have got it we have mastered God we understand it let me tell you for the whole of eternity and I'm sure I've said this a couple of times already from the front for the whole of eternity we will discover more and more and more of the character of God and it will lead us deeper and deeper and deeper into worship for the whole of eternity and Hosea isn't afraid to state here you're not going to judge them and yet you are a holy God who could righteously judge them. I don't understand this, but I'm going to say it anyway. You know, and I think Paul, who had so much teaching in the Old Testament, so he knew it all. And then in the New Testament, you know, he go, when he first hears the gospel, he goes away and considers it, and then he goes up and talks to Peter, and he's like, is this right? He has so much revelation, so much of what we teach in the church is based on some a lot of his writings. And yet he... With all of that revelation, this is what he says at Romans Romans 11. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable. Surely Paul had searched it. Surely Paul had plumbed the depths of God, hadn't he? How unsearchable his judgments beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counsellor? Who has ever given to God that we should repay him? For from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory. In the depth of his understanding of theology, Paul was led to worship. Say, I do not understand. And this is the point with Hosea. God just seems to entrench the position more. Surely they have to be judged. And yet, and yet you're a holy God. But we have to understand that God's, God's holiness, God's justice, God's righteousness that leads him to, to anger, to leads him to wrath, is not like ours, okay? Jenny and I watched the Avengers last night. 
And um, you're thinking, how has he got something from the Avengers? I mean, okay, and you've got the Hulk, right? And he and he's desperately trying to calm his anger, isn't he? And he's desperate to. And then uh, the, the, then the rage comes, and he just bursts out of his clothes, and he just goes on the rampage. And it's sort of a picture of like us, what we can be like when we get angry. You know, God says. God says man's righteousness, a man's anger does not lead to the righteousness that God's desire. When we get angry at something, it consumes us. We're just, we're just like time bombs waiting to go off that just explode and destroy everything around us. You know, like the Hulk, when uh, they say to him, Hulk, it's time for you to get angry. And he says, this is the secret. I'm always angry. And this Hulk comes out and he just destroys everything. And that sort of is a picture of our anger. But God, in injustice, in righteousness, who could justly wipe Israel off the face of the earth, who could have left you and me dead in our transgressions and sins, doesn't. And what we receive is compassion if we receive the one who stepped across the divide. See, D.A. Carson defines God's wrath like this. God's wrath is not an implacable, implacable, I don't really know how to pronounce that word, can't be complete, can't be complicated. Blind rage. However emotional it may be, it is an entirely reasonable and willed response to offences against his holiness. God who could have torn down from heaven, fire blazing from his nostrils and consumed every single one of us, instead chose to climb down out of heaven, become like one of us, experience our weaknesses, lived perfectly through the Holy Spirit throughout, and then stand at the hands of us and have every single one of the wrong things that we have done that led us away from God's glory placed upon his head and die. The only one who never deserved it took the punishment. How awful is it, a miscarriage of justice? Yet every single sin from the beginning of creation to the end was placed on Christ at that moment. And as he died, God said, that, that has satisfied my wrath. He didn't pour out wrath on us. It was poured out on his own son in a willed way. So that he could turn to you and say, son, I love you. All my compassion is aroused over you. I love you. So I'm going to I'm going to punish my son as you deserve so that I can pour out my love upon you. How awesome is that? And so this is the picture we get. They will follow the Lord. He will roar like a lion. When he roars, his children will come trembling from the west. At the end of chapter 5 last week, when we, we looked at the lion that tears apart in judgment, now becomes a lion who roars. You know, if you are in Christ, God roars for you. He is beckoning. It's a call. I'm going to call my people from the west. When the lion roars... He summons the people. This isn't a picture of savagery. It's now, I'm not fighting against you. I'm fighting for you. Come join me. But you know, if we are outside Christ, the judgment of God is still righteously applied to us. Unless you accept that your sin was counted against Christ on the cross... When God comes again in all his glory, it will be counted against you. 
If you have not received Christ, you have no hope. All the good works, all the good things you have ever done count for nothing. And so right now, as we come to a close, I want to invite you to join me in a prayer. And if you do not know Jesus, if you are contemplating that that point this morning that the punishment of God will come upon me unless I know Christ Jesus, then I want to invite you to pray with me. Just 